0: Looking at the church from a micro, macro level, big macro level, my guess is that the devil is laughing and rejoicing and celebrating. Why would I say such a thing? The reason I say it is because one of our spiritual enemy's greatest strategies is to divide, especially when it comes to the family of God, to the body of Christ. He wants to split us apart. Because he recognizes the reality that we as Christ followers, when we stand united, when we stand together in our mission, we are unstoppable, empowered by the Spirit of God. But when we are divided, we become weak, ineffective, often overlooked by the rest of the world. It's a daunting thing to think about and even talk about. And whenever I face that reality that many times the church doesn't look much different than the world, it's overwhelming. I think, what could I possibly do? What could we possibly do? Because I, Peyton Mensma, I don't have a lot of power to change the world. I don't. But I do have influence in my family. I have influence in my neighborhood. I have influence with my church family. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to make the same passionate faith-filled appeal that the Apostle Paul made to the church in Corinth. Here's how that starts. If you have your Bible, you can turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. I'll put part of it on the board here. He says, I appeal to you, or I beg you, or I urge you, or I plead with you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that what? All of you would agree with one another in what you say and that there would be, check this out, that there would be no divisions among you, but that you would be perfectly united in mind and in thoughts. I beg you, I plead with you, I urge you that there would be no divisions in the family of God, that we would all be united in mind and thoughts, what Paul says. When Paul uses that word In Greek, that's translated divisions. In Greek, it's the word schizma, Schisma. Other places in the Bible, in Greek language, it can be translated as to split, to divide, but it can also mean to rip or to tear apart something. In fact, just to illustrate, you might might recognize this picture. It's a classic picture of the blue-eyed, blonde-haired Jesus that we all know. Uh, funny thing, I actually had this exact picture hanging up in my gym growing up as a kid. We had like a little part of our garage that had like a punching bag and a treadmill. Th- this picture was by the punching bag, which I don't think had any correlation. I didn't put it there. And honestly, I don't even know why we had a picture of Jesus in our gym, but this was the picture we had. And what Paul is saying, he's saying, I'm, I'm begging you, I'm pleading with you that there would be no Divisions. No tearing apart, no ripping of the body of Christ. Because when we, as the body of Christ, whenever we fight, whenever we argue, essentially what we're doing is we are dividing up Christ's body. We're ripping apart the unity that actually makes us strong. We're tearing the faith that makes us the light in a very dark world. Whenever we fight, whenever we argue, whenever we let smaller issues divide us from our primary mission, essentially we're tearing the body of Christ. Now, I hope you don't call me a heretic for tearing apart a picture of Jesus, but I want you to see it. I want you to feel it about this absurd situation that Paul is presenting to the church in Corinth where he says that Christ's body, it's essentially being treated as a possession, as a commodity that can be ripped apart and haggled over. Paul says, I beg you, I urge you, I plead with you, stand together. Don't let any divisions be among you. And if if Paul's words aren't enough, I want you to see these words from Jesus. One of his last moments in the garden as he prays, it's it's a cry from the heart of the Savior to his heavenly Father. And here's what he prays. He says, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That's you. That all of them may be, maybe what? One. Maybe one. Say one. One. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me. And I am in you. Why? Why do we need to be one? What is the point of unity? Why would Jesus be praying this prayer at this moment? Well, he says it in the next sentence. May they also be in us. Why? So that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus prayed to his Father that all believers, both in his time and the one that would come, may be one. That they may be brought together in complete unity. In other words, instead of being divided and weak, if we stand united, if we stand strong, resisting the schemes and the attacks and the strategies of the evil one, that we could actually help usher in the kingdom of God. That we could be a part of bringing heaven on earth as Jesus prayed. So, Paul prayed that we would be united the opening chapter of Corinth or Corinthians Jesus prayed that we would be one so here's a question i want to pose to you this morning what if we could be the generation that answers those prayers what if it could be us what if it started with this church what if it started with you god help us help us unite help us stand together around the truth and the message of Jesus. Amen. The question that you are then, comes right after that question that presents itself to you, is how do you do it? How are you supposed to find unity? How are we supposed to come one? How do we unite together around the truth and the mission of Jesus? What will finally unify the church? And the answer is actually pretty simple. It will take one enemy and one mission one enemy and one mission. One enemy is going to help us unite. In fact, the Apostle Paul talks about this in Ephesians chapter 6. He says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood. I want you to think about that for just a moment. In other words, he says, I want you to recognize that your battle is not against other human beings. Your battle is not against them. Who is our battle against? Who is our enemy The rulers and the authorities and the powers of the dark world against the spiritual forces and the evil that exists in the heavenly realm. Our battle, Paul says, is not against each other. In other words, what he's saying is that the church down the streets, they're not your enemy. They're not your enemy. That those who use a different version of the Bible than you do, they're not your enemy that the person who votes differently than you do, who has a different perspective of the pandemic, who views the vaccine differently than you do, they're not your enemy. The person with a different skin color than you, that's not your enemy. The one with a different background, who enjoys different music, who dresses differently, who expresses themselves differently than you do, They're not the enemy. We have one enemy. We have one enemy. He is the devil. He is the prince of darkness, the father of lies, the great deceiver. Jesus calls him the thief that comes to steal and kill and destroy in John chapter 10, verse 10. He is the devil, the Lucifer, the Satan, the accuser, whatever name you want to give him, and he wants to destroy our unity. His goal is to kill our churches. And to destroy our witness as a light in a very, very dark world. Why? Why? Why is he on a rampage to kill and destroy and to divide? Because he knows the truth. That if we stand united around the mission of Jesus, we are unstoppable. That the world has nothing against us. But whenever we allow divisions and cracks to exist among us, We become weak and ineffective. One of the strongest unifying forces is a common enemy. This is intuitive, right? We understand this in times of war and conflict. In 1996, when the planet was being invaded by an alien race, we understood a common enemy would unite us. In 2003, when we were being plagued by a zombie apocalypse, right, we knew a common enemy united us. And I'm only kidding, but I'm also not, because you recognize that this is true in your own family. If you have a little brother or sister or some kind of relative that oh, maybe growing up, maybe even still, they annoy you, they, they, they get it on your bad side, they all bicker back and forth, you just can't seem to get along, you can't tolerate them until somebody starts messing with them. And then all of a sudden you realize that blood is a lot thicker, right? You can't mess with somebody that I love. That's my job. <laughs> I hope you understand that the devil is attacking the body of Christ. The devil is attacking our nation. The devil is attacking our families and our children. And we have to recognize that we have a common enemy. We have a common enemy and recognizing that one enemy, it will actually unite us. It will help our churches stand strong in our mission. One enemy, one enemy. Can you imagine the church coming to a place, us coming to a place where we begin to recognize the schemes and the strategies that the devil is deploying on our lives to put cracks between me and somebody else in this room. That is highlighting, illuminating these small, subtle differences between me and you that helps me recognize that you are my enemy and not the devil. That begins to plot us against each other. So I don't recognize you as, a, as made in the image of God just like me. I see you as the enemy. And all of a sudden, I'm distracted and broken and fractured. Can you imagine a time when the church can come to a place, when we can come to a place where we recognize it and we don't stand for it any longer? What would unite us as followers of Christ? One enemy and one mission. One mission. The mission unites us. What did Jesus say? He suffered brutally on the cross. He looked up to heaven and said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He shed his blood. He gave his life. Jesus, or God, raised him from the dead. In the very last moment, the resurrected Christ, the very last thing he says on his time on earth, he stands in front of his closest friends and followers, his disciples. And what does he tell them? Do you remember? He says this. He says, therefore, go and make disciples. Go make more versions of you, of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That is what you do. That is who you are. That is your mission. That is what you stand for. That is the calling of the church, the ecclesia, the called out ones. We don't go to church. We are the church and this is our responsibility. One mission, one mission to help people recognize and experience the life-giving love and grace of our Savior Jesus Christ. That is our mission. But sadly, what is the church known for today? Because it's very rarely are we known for our mission. If you were to go to JC Park, maybe not now because it's a little wet, but on a drier, more beautiful day, you go to JC Park and you ask just a regular person, what do you know about the church? What do you think they would say in response? Divisions. Divisions. Yeah. They may know us by, they may know us by our traditions. They know which churches are more contemporary, what churches are more traditional. They may know. Uh, They may say something like, oh, I got married in a church, and they may recognize our architectural design of our building, stained glass windows, how beautiful they are. They may even know where that cool worship leader is that has the hairspray and the skinny jeans and the arm tattoos. They may be able to know which churches have that guy. Or worse, they don't know us for our buildings and how we worship, but they know us by what we don't stand for. Oh, that church doesn't like those kind of people. That church doesn't go to those type of events. We don't associate, they don't associate with these type of people. What if instead of being known for what we're against, the church, as followers of Jesus, were known for what we were for? For love and grace and mercy and compassion and justice and generosity which is why unity should be so painfully important to us. It's why unity was so painfully important to Paul as he opens up this letter to the Corinthians. It's why unity was so painfully important to Jesus as he offers it as a last prayer before he is crucified. Because we recognize that many believers of ancient and modern, have rejected the gospel on the grounds that a religion as visibly divided as Christianity could scarcely reflect the truth. In John chapter 17, Jesus prayed that his disciples might be unified. That we would be one. And, and you might be thinking, this all sounds great. It sounds like a good sermon, a good pep speech, but we're already down 25 points in the ball game and we have one quarter left. Is there really any hope? The division between Democrat and Republican is so vast. Is there really any hope to bring the church together? The division between what, how we view this pandemic and react to it and how, uh, how we are scared of it or how we unify against it Is there really a chance for us to unite? And if you feel that tension, you don't fully recognize what Paul was doing by bringing together two very opposite people and unifying them under the name of Jesus, Jews and Gentiles. People of opposite sociological, economical, geographical, religious stances and bringing them together under the name of Jesus. And yet he still stands here and says, we are to be one. The evangelistic potential of a united church extends to the most powerful anti-Christian forces in the universe. The Hebrew author thought so, and he thought that that unity is going to come through the church. But the only way that that unity can have any impact on a non-Christian world is it has to be visible in the first place. It starts right here with us. How we look and treat each other in this own building, in this own family. Church should be a place where people who have no natural reason for associating with each other come together in love. The church should be a place where people learn to sing songs that they don't naturally like. The church should be a place where people are serving in a capacity that may make them uncomfortable, but they do it because they know it is necessary. The church should be a place where people are far more concerned about fellowship than they are attendance. They don't rush out right when worship is over or only come to the important things. Church should be a place where people support activities and events that maybe aren't their highest priority. And all of this conversation of unity and coming together, it reminds me of one of the major pillars in our church covenant. And if you're not familiar with our church covenant, it's these pillars that we stand on that keep us focused on what is important And what our calling is that we have all agreed upon. And there is a pillar that says, I will protect the unity of my church, of this church family. How will I do that? By acting in love and mercy and kindness towards other members, even ones who aren't showing that to me. I will protect it by attending faithfully, and that attending is more than attendance. I will do it by respecting those in a leadership position. Trusting that the Spirit is doing something in these walls. We are a part of the body of Christ. The family of God. The church. We don't go to church. We are the church. And we believe that the local church is the hope of the world. That you are the hope of the world. But it matters. It matters how unified we are. Because we can do infinitely more together than we can apart. We are stronger when we are united. Who are we? We are followers of Jesus. We are the body of Christ. And though we may have different roles, and though we may not always agree with each other, we are united under the name of Jesus. No matter what we look like, no matter what we believe, no matter how we prefer to worship, we are united under the same Jesus. And they in the world are not going to know us by how we vote. They don't care. They're not going to know us by what we post on social media. They don't care. They are going to know us by how we love, by how we love each other and how we love them. So I beg you, I plead you, I urge you for the one who gave it all for us, can we get this right? Can we get it right? This is Paul's plea to the Corinthians. This is my plea to you. Can we love the Lord our God with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our mind and all of our strength? And can we love our neighbor as we love ourselves? That is our assignment, to go into the world and to love. We have one enemy one enemy, and that enemy hates God and hates God's people and is trying to divide us, trying to get anything he can do to get between you and somebody else in this room so that you recognize them not as an image of God but as your enemy. That's what he's trying to do. He is attacking us and we have one mission, one mission, and we recognize that the enemy is attacking, but greater is he who is in us than who is in the world. Amen? Greater is He who is in us than who is in the world. Amen? Amen. Amen. We can overcome with the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. That Spirit now dwells inside of you. So let's do it. When we leave these doors, when they look at us, when they talk about us, when they talk about this church, when they talk about followers of Jesus, I pray that they will know us by our love. That they will be overwhelmed by our grace and our compassion and our mercy. So Father, help us to show your love and to make you known. And we pray this in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen.